Hello and welcome to another edition of The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. Mention the Barclay Brothers, billionaire owners until recently of the Daily Telegraph and the Spectator, and you think of three things. There's Private Eye characterising the duo, David, who died in 2021 aged 86, and his twin brother Frederick, as weirdos for their identical dress and the habit of doing everything together, even finishing one another's sentences. There's the Barclays' obsessive reclusiveness and litigiousness. They built a private castle, Fort Breco, off the Channel Island of Sark, and equipped it with a private security force. They fought bitterly with their neighbours in Sark, and over the decades they've defended their privacy aggressively, suing the Times, the BBC, The Observer, John Sweeney, and others in the UK and France to keep their names and faces out of the media outlets that they did not own. And then, ironically, there is the glaring publicity of two recent court cases which tore down that carefully constructed wall of privacy in the most embarrassing fashion imaginable. After the brothers fell out in 2015, Frederick sued David's sons for bugging his conversations at the Ritz Hotel, which the Barclays owned. This was followed in 2021 by the spectacle of Frederick in court for failing to honour a £100 million divorce settlement with Hiroko, his ex-wife and the mother of his only child. Yet for all this, surprisingly little is known about the two brothers who, at the height of their wealth, were estimated to be worth £7 billion. They had the ear of Margaret Thatcher, and with the Telegraph and the Spectator, they were key enablers of Brexit. Our guest today, Jane Martinson, aims to remedy all of that with her new book, You May Never See Us Again, The Barclay Dynasty, A Story of Survival, Secrecy and Succession. Jane Martinson, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you for asking me, Andrew. Good to be here. So the reaction of most journalists to the topic of the Barclay Brothers is horror and do not go there. They have, they have sued widely and aggressively. Um, what made you want to write this book? Well, I think they've always been really fascinating. I was um, covering uh, the media business, actually, for The Guardian in 2004 when they bought The Telegraph, which, although they'd owned loads of newspapers, um, no one really knew much about them. And it was this incredible auction. But then, of course, you know, their history of enormous secrecy. I mean, you, you, you know, you talked about the sort of desire for secrecy. That's also come out in subsequent court cases. Really complicated structure, which took a lot of time to try and unravel and super litigious. Um, you know, they've, they've sued lots of journalists, really deterred most newspapers for doing anything unless there was a really sort of big story, which, of course, when they, they bought the telegraph, there was. Scroll forward quite a few years, though, and, um, I'd stopped working full-time at a newspaper. I was doing um, work as a um, professor of financial journalism at City, and I freelance, and I was asked to do sort of investigate what was going on once there were reports of them selling the Telegraph. So this is 2019. I spent three months with Tortoise Media, really sort of digging into what was going on, discovered that there were real problems within the finances, but also within the family. By the time a year later that David Barclay died in the January of 21, I was actually approached by a publisher who said, have you ever thought of turning this into a book, which it was a lockdown and I hadn't really thought a lot. That's what led to this, you know, years of backbreaking work since. <laughs> I mean, as a former media, media editor of The Guardian, you are very conscious of the legal tightrope, but this must have been especially daunting. Were you ever worried that you were going to attract their attention? <laughs> like from the very beginning, of course. I mean, it, you know, I'd... When I wrote the tortoise piece, I, I tried, I've, I've tried all the way through to talk to as many members of the family as I could, but also to get, you know, the Aidan Howard Barkley, who run the, um, who run the business really, um, now, uh, to talk. And I sent a whole series of questions and I gave them sort of two week right to reply. Having talked to the lawyer, I got a response that was no, no answer, no comment, but, you know, the night before, well, the lawyers will be reading it. Obviously they're keen. They don't, didn't particularly want that uh, to be 
featured in any sort of um, news feature at all. Um, they don't talk to the press. I mean, David Barclay famously said, um, you know, that their belief in privacy, they believe in sort of their lives are private and that they should be able to carry on being private. I suppose my sense and argument, and I, I really felt the, the more I sort of spent time looking at their lives and their careers, was that it's a huge matter of public interest, actually, the, their careers, but also how they run their business and what sort of businesses they ran. And so there should at least be some greater knowledge of how it happened. And it's a, it's a cracking story. You know, it's an amazing story. Their lives, they came from nothing. They built this really complex, multifaceted business by buying and selling, by borrowing loads of money. The legal side of things was, was really daunting. And after I did the draft, you know, they're sort of going through legally um, the proof we had and how we'd said what we'd said. Uh, you know, took quite a long time, as you can imagine. The title, You May Never See Us Again, was their sign-off for their first and what turns out to be their only meeting with one of their editors. And it just kind of resonated in a rather a sinister way, the idea that these guys can simply just melt into nowhere. How is it How is it possible that two people can rise to such power and wealth and yet remain largely unknown? Is it just a, the consistent threat of legal action or is it something more? I think it's definitely more. I mean, the consistent threat of legal action is always a bit chilling for newspaper inquiry. If people refuse to talk to you, it's, you know, journalists are busy. And since 2004, particularly, you know, the last 20 years, you've had sort of more to do with fewer people because the finances are not so great in the media industry as they were. So sort of not having any engagement plus wildly complicated structures. So how it all related to each other, which companies, there were lots of offshore companies. I mean, when I did the tortoise piece, there were 197 that I could find and count where they were directors. Um, as you mentioned, you know, the story is remarkable. The two of them emerge from a genuinely poor background. The, the world you describe is like something out of a Colin McInnes novel. It's all, you know, uh, damp rooms and commercial travellers and slum rentals and so forth. They escape it through property development and then into hotels, which seems like this remarkable kind of meteoric rise to wealth. What was their special talent? You, you mentioned man the management of debt. So they, they had lots of different um, talents. I'm not sure it's fair to say, sort of special talent, given what happened was the sort of indebtedness. But they managed to build up in the early days. They did lots of different things. They were painters and decorators. And they were also around in um, West London, parts of Shepherd's Bush, that was sort of a, a microcosm for what was going on in um, in London, really. There was a desperate lack of um, housing. There were rent controls, which the government of the day, the Conservative government in 1956, disbanded. And it was sort of like a Wild West and property ever since. I mean, if you think of the history of post-war Britain, property has been a way of lots of people making money, not as much money as the Barclays did. So they did lots of buying and selling. And there's a really sort of lovely story that I was told in the book where Frederick was working as an estate agent. They had lots of different jobs in the 50s. And his brother lived on a street and he was um, on his own in the office one day and a woman came in. She was desperate to buy a house on a particular street because her father, her ageing father, lived there. There were no houses for sale that they had. And Frederick said, I know a house. Let me go and show it to you. And she, he went and he showed her his house and he sold this house at great price because she was really desperate and thought, oh, wow, it's, it's available. And he had just sold his brother David's house, um, which wasn't actually for sale. 
And they sort of carried on with this buying and selling mentality. It then, they went through, I mean, the Crown Agents was a really interesting uh, chapter in their lives, which is actually one of my favourite chapters in the book. But they then in the 80s did the deal that made everyone in the city think uh, they should be taken seriously and had a, an eye for a deal. And that was they took over Element, a, a shipping line, a sort of conglomerate, we, we'd call it. And they basically bought it for um, just under 50 million. They sold, to show how successful this deal was for them, they sold one part of it, a completely unloved brewing section, for five times that, for almost 250 just a few years later. Uh, so they made a killing on basically taking over a conglomerate and uh, assets, selling off bits, asset stripping, selling bits, making a fortune. By the end of the 80s, people in the city that have been really quite patronising and snooty about these sorts of, you know, strange men, the sort of small twins who had sort of, you know, West, I mean, not West End accents, we would call it more of a sort of East End accent. They were really sort of condescending. By the end of the 80s, they thought, no, these men make a fortune. And from that moment, they could always get access to funds. So banks would, as we've subsequently seen their subsequent history, they never had any trouble getting banks to lend them money. But, you know, so when they, for the Daily Telegraph, they bought the Daily Telegraph in 2004, they ended up paying 400 million more than they wanted to. They tried to buy it from Conrad Black for far less. They just went to the bank and got that money. So that was the sort of power of their reputation as great deal makers. How important was political influence to them and how, and how early? After the, uh, the failure of their bid to buy the Imperial Continental Gas Association, which is blocked by politicians, they seem to realise that they must have political influence or they'll always be on the back foot. I think they'd realised sort of before then, it, there's a really interesting part about how they ended up getting close to the Conservative Party and um, really through fundraising. So once they'd made the money from Elliman, Obviously, they were invited to the kind of um, party fundraising lunches and dinners. Um, Alistair McAlpine, who was a major part of the sort of, um, he was chairman for a while, but he did a lot of fundraising for the party and became actually a very good friend of David Barclays. So they were sort of already involved. They famously became, they were huge fans of Margaret Thatcher. So in 1990, when she had to leave Downing Street, uh, David Barclay or the Barclays were responsible for finding her sort of suitable premises, which was in fact one of their houses on Chester Square. And famously, when she died, they provided a suite at the Ritz. So they became very close to Margaret Thatcher. I mean, in terms of political influence, their, their own personal relations. So there was obviously Thatcher. I mean, there were then obviously more prime ministers were involved. So Boris Johnson, long term Telegraph columnist didn't have the best start with them actually when they took over the site. But anyway, he carried on writing a very lucrative column for him until the moment he went to number ten. They also very close to Nigel Farage, you know, keen keen Brexiteers. And I talk in the book about the celebrations at the Ritz that were held sort of on the morning of the referendum campaign, for example. Their own personal relations. There was obviously evidence of people that they were close to. The Leveson inquiry showed how close Aidan Barclay was to, to certain politicians, like um, whether it's David Cameron or Gordon Brown, and that that also comes with major newspaper ownership. Of course, owning the Telegraph, the House Bible of the Conservative Party, 
was um, is a way to make sure you're on speed dial with uh, people in power. It is a huge irony, isn't it, that they demand absolute privacy for themselves and yet their own newspapers take privacy away from people whether they like it or not. John Sweeney uh, quoted Aidan Barclay at the Leveson Inquiry, a free press is fundamental to the proper functioning of a democratic society and it's necessary to scrutinise those in positions of influence and power and report it in the public interest. This is the exact opposite of what the Barclays have done with in their own lives, isn't it? Well, I called the chapter um, on the newspaper, their ownership of newspapers, um, the headline is, so why then do you want to own a newspaper? Because it always seems like that is, you know, if you buy it, I think Rupert Murdoch and John Sweeney said this, Rupert Murdoch sort of understands that if you believe in the freedom of the press and people to write what they like, then you cannot be entirely closed to um, having parts of your um, affairs sort of written about. And the level of sort of, um, it's a lack of transparency, really, which I think goes to the heart of what what's so interesting about this is sort of how difficult it is to find information and then how, you know, a combination of wealthy people being able to stifle that information getting into the public realm. Well, there are two really big <laughs> ironies, but one of them is that, you know, they were renowned for their lawfare, you know, their, this idea of using the law to whether it's against journalists or um, in Sark, there were huge numbers of legal actions. But it was that actually it was only when they turned the law against each other. So the bugging case that emerged in early 2020, where one side of the family took the other to the high court and accused them. There was They were fitting bugs, listening devices in a very private room, um, a conservatory at the Ritz, which was only used by the family members. And they went to the high court. They used the sort of full weight of the law against each other. And it was the details of that case that sort of brought into the public realm, which was, you know, the irony. And again, the divorce case, it wasn't so much that um, Lady Hiroko, so Frederick's wife, left him after a 34-year marriage, but that when he was then ordered to pay $100 million, he refused to pay. And so he went, he was found to be in contempt of part of it. And it was those proceedings that, um, you know, sort of revealed sort of most of the sort of a lot of the details of the later years. And, you know, had Aidan and Howard Barkley come to give evidence. What is the background to the falling out, though? Because, you know, the, the bugging is subsequent to the break between the two brothers, surely. They must have fallen out about something. I mean, it was essentially over uh, the sort of how the businesses were they were already struggling sort of, you know, in mid 2013, 2014, there were issues, um, all sorts of things were coming due, debts were coming due, etc. They hoped to pull off a deal that didn't happen. They also fell out over succession, you know, who, how they, they divided it in a way that was um, not 50-50. They decided to leave um, 25% to Frederick's only child, uh, the only daughter, and um, 75% divided by three of David's four sons. And um, so the, the sort of arguments that started over succession sort of really came to a head when also financial, there was sort of squeezes on the finances. And that got worse. 2019, obviously the economy starting to change. I mean, post-2008, but, you know, that in a way, this is the sort of, again, going back to this idea that the sort of big changes in post-war Britain 2008 had this massive impact on people that had huge debts 
Um, we didn't really know the extent of those debts until earlier this year, one of their banks, Lloyd's, seized control of the Telegraph. But I mean, I, you know, I detail how much they were sort of having to use loans and doing intercompany loans and moving money around. Their obsessive need to privacy leads them to acquire Breco, the, uh, which is a small island next to Sark, and build this bizarre castle, which I think someone in the book describes as a child's drawing of a castle designed by Quinlan Terry, who designed Poundbury for King Charles. The, it's the largest private home built in the UK for 200 years, and it costs between five and £10 million pounds a year to run. What does Fort Breco tell us about the Barclays? I mean, I, you know, I've been saying since, you know, I could have made Sark and Breco and what happened there a whole book in itself. It was just, it was sort of astonishing. In the end, I've sort of limited it to two chapters, which was the buying of this island, which is a rock essentially in the channel next to um, Sark, which is in itself the most fascinating story. You know, it's this, it was the last feudal state in Europe when they bought it. And um, they built this incredible fortress Thousands of men working uh, 24 hours a day, you know, with floodlights, just incredible uh, venture, really. And they branded it with their joint initials. And, and it was something for the whole family, or, you know, the sort of generations, other brothers would come out to stay and had quarters. You know, the, the families would spend lovely Christmases there. It was this sort of real hideaway, which in fact, you know, David Barkley spent his sort of quite a lot of his final years with COVID and everything on the island. And then what was really interesting is this campaign. They were There were lots of things. That, I mean, Sark is fascinating and really strange in many ways. You know, it was sort of, they had this feudal state. There was all sorts of things that were allowed. You know, there was still a law on the statute that a man could whip his wife. You know, local residents say it wasn't used that much, but it was still this really anachronistic world. And the Barclays ended up sort of having this long running. I mean, the idea of lawfare, the, the number of cases, the number of sort of uh, legal threats against people living on Sark was astonishing. And even with that, it was quite obvious by what happened subsequently. It was David was really sort of in the driving seat. David Barclay, you know, took over three of the five hotels and then when they had the um, democratic election that he had pushed very hard for, actually writing long pieces in the local Guernsey press about democracy and, you know, how freedom mattered. And then when they didn't choose the candidates that the Barclay brothers had backed, he just closed all the hotels down and they all the people that worked for them got sacked just before Christmas. It was this sort of crazy, just... You know, and there's so many conspiracy theories of why they did this and why he was so obsessed with it. And it did lead to a sort of break, you know, one of the early sort of other signs that they weren't moving entirely in tandem all the time was that Frederick was less involved in the island. And it emerged much later with his divorce that he had actually effectively been kicked off by the beginning of 2014. He'd been sort of banned from, banished from his own island uh, by his twin brother. And he wouldn't even let him value the half share that he had when it came to his divorce. It was all just sort of crazy, really. But that fortress still exists. And obviously the uh, widow of Sir David and his youngest son has sort of seen them more than anyone else. But it's um, it, it's just, yes, yeah, an incredible story. In closing, the, the Barclays have lost control of the Telegraph. Their dirty laundry has been shown in public in ways that they certainly didn't want. 
one brother has died, another is in, in his, his his 80s. How do you think history will will remember the Barclays? Because they, they were prominent figures in some really significant periods and exercised outside influence, particularly over Brexit. Well, you know, there's a point, and I say in the book, it should have been one of Britain's greatest success stories. I mean, they built an empire with so many different assets from nothing. You know, you could talk about, we could question their use of debt, the way they did that, their sort of the way that the law allowed them, their political influence. But actually, it has not ended that way, partly because um, obviously the debts, that the sort of businesses they had were not generating enough cash to pay for the debt they had, particularly with Lloyds, it seems, because they have not been able to pay that back. Now, I mean, the, the next generation, the older sons of um, David Barclay, are still trying to find another way of paying off that debt, which they hope will mean that they keep control of the Telegraph, which is one of their, you know, particularly their father's most prized assets, owning the house organ of the Conservative Party, house Bible of the Conservative Party. So they still want to do that. The chances, but few sort of people can believe that they um, they're going to manage it. But Lloyd's have so far rejected every um, every offer they've made since, having been trying to get the money back since 2012. I think their use of lawyers, their lack of transparency, their use of wildly complicated structures. I would hope it would lead to a greater review of tr- transparency in this country and how we are able to find out things um, of real public interest. I mean, they, you know, the taxation we haven't really talked about, but they were hoping at the end for a big sort of payout by the HMRC over compound VAT. And yet they'd always managed their affairs over things like the Ritz, where they never illegally, but, you know, they managed to avoid as much tax as they could. That was found um, in the divorce case that their whole way of running their their operations you know, the, the judge in that case said was in order to avoid tax. So we need to sort of have a greater transparency and openness, I think, about um, how the law, how very seemingly very rich people use the law and complicated structures to deter genuine investigation. Jane Martinson, thanks for joining us on The Bunker. Thank you. Listeners, we're running a survey right now to find out what you, the listener, think of The Bunker, what we do well, what we do badly, and what we should change. It's on our Patreon page right now, and it's open to everyone, not just Patreon supporters. So follow the link in the show notes or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Click on the survey and tell us what you think. Five respondents will get a Bunker t-shirt or mug of their choice, so there's a bit of an incentive there too. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bunker Daily was presented by Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison. The Managing Editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the Producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Art Direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.